God, we ask that uh, you would help us to continue in an attitude and a spirit of worship. We are aware that uh, there are holy places and holy spaces and holy moments in our lives, and we get to have this time together uh, in a building that's called a sanctuary because it is a a place of uh, respite and a place of uh, safety and a place where we can, as a community, meet with you. Help us to be uh, attentive toward you and bent toward you, leaning into you in worship and in love and in gratitude. As we read from your word, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are good and fertile soil. I pray Sincerely, that if my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words deviate from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So, uh, it is, uh, it's kind of like family time here. The last Sunday was a big Sunday, um, Easter, kind of the, the pinnacle Sunday of the year for us as a congregation and Christians. And then here we are, uh, the other half of us, uh, on uh, the what's often called Low Sunday in the uh, liturgical calendar in the church. It's also known as in some uh, segments of the church, and particularly the Eastern Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, as Thomas Sunday. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Have you heard that the Sunday after Easter is often called in, in the Eastern and the Orthodox churches Thomas Sunday? No? One or two of you? Maybe so. So, uh, and that is because Thomas sort of gets uh, the most attention as a disciple after Jesus' resurrection. There's a passage in the 11th chapter of John where Thomas is mentioned in uh, Lazarus has passed away and Jesus is glad that he's not there, he says to his disciples, so that he can uh, eventually raise Lazarus from death. And Thomas uh, sort of bursts out this proclamation of faith at the end of that section in John chapter 11. Uh, despite that, and that's the only time in the Gospels other than at the beginning where Matthew and Mark and Luke make lists of the Gospels, that's the only time that Luke is mentioned or that Thomas is mentioned until after Jesus' resurrection. So Thomas' first real personal mention begins uh, as a believing Thomas, not doubting Thomas as he's historically known, but as believing Thomas, exuberant Thomas, faith-filled Thomas. And then we read these words in John chapter 14, right before Jesus' resurrection, his crucifixion and resurrection. Uh, Do not let your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas perks up and says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus replied, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then we're gonna jump six chapters later to after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, chapter 20, beginning at verse 19. And this was originally the end of John's gospel. 
On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the door closed, locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, shalom. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you, shalom. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them or spirited on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which just means twin in Greek, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and now Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. Then he said specifically to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, in believing, you may have life in his name. And so John's whole movement is toward belief. Toward, and uh, belief isn't just saying, I believe, as the quote on your front of their bulletin uh, indicates, but it is about living into that in such a way that what one hopes for, believes in, affects one's life. One doesn't really believe, Dallas Willard says, until one acts on that belief. And that is what John is after in his gospel, helping people to live fully into their belief. It's interesting that he, we have this character, Thomas, who's known as the doubting one, but John really portrays him as the believing one. More than that, we have this negative image of Thomas in our minds, but John puts in Thomas's lips the most uh, accurate an affirming affirmation of Jesus anywhere in the scriptures. Jesus never says in John's gospel, I am God. He always acts and lives and interacts with people in ways that they respond and they make those declarations. And here at the end of John's gospel, it is Thomas of all people who makes the most important declaration in all of the gospels. My Lord and my God, exclamation point. And so Thomas, though he had his questions and though he had his doubts, as we all do in different ways, ends up being uh, the hero of John's gospel in some ways. And so a model for us and one who, as we look at him, gives us the freedom to go, well, here are my questions, Jesus. How do I get there? How does that happen? What is the way? What is heaven like? Et cetera, et cetera. And so with that, uh, we, as we said last week, we're going to try to do some questions. 
uh, as we've done the last two years on the Sunday after Easter, just to kind of mix it up a little bit with what we're doing and to have a little bit of opportunity for interaction here in the sanctuary, uh, different than what we normally do. So uh, I was given a number of questions last week and spent a little bit of time with them uh, over the course of this week, and then I'm going to try to take a stab at some of them this morning. I want to start with one that uh, someone wrote out, uh, and it came to me uh, kind of differently than the rest of them. And that person said, what are some of the most difficult questions about Christianity to which the answer is, I don't know? What are some of the most difficult questions about Christianity to which the best answer is, I don't know? And I think the person wanted me to say, I don't know a lot. And there are a lot of questions to which I don't know the answer. And in many ways, we still live by faith, which is the same Greek word as trust. When we talk about faith, we acknowledge that we don't know a lot of things. We don't know everything. But we take much on trust, faith, believing. And as the author of the book of Hebrews and our memory verse says, this belief we have with certainty and with confidence and assurance because of the other things that we have known and experienced. So there are many questions we must say, I must say, that I don't know the answer to with scientific knowing. And I will say that some as we go through some of these questions, but I want to get it out up front. And if I tried to make a list of all of those questions that I don't know the answer to, it would be very long and it would be hard to come across them or to think of all of them. But you you know the questions that people uh, make up to try to uh, paint God into a corner. Can God make a rock that is too large for God to lift? I don't know. And that's the beginning of many I don't know answers. Next question, why would a loving God create people knowing they would reject him and spend an eternity suffering in hell? Why would a loving God create people knowing they would reject him and spend an eternity in hell? I don't know. Next question. I don't know, though. It's a good question. What we do know and what I do know is that God is love. And as Paul writes to the Corinthians, love always hopes, and love sets free, and love redeems. This is an imperfect analogy, but if a parent, a woman, a couple were pregnant and came to know that the child in the womb had some horrible, difficult, challenging genetic disease or uh, malformation that would make that child's entire life, however long he or she lived, extremely difficult, painful, and full of suffering. Would the loving parent choose to go ahead with that pregnancy? I would argue that the loving parent would, or a loving parent would. And it's not a perfect analogy, but love hopes, love presses through, uh, love does the most loving thing at the beginning. God is love. He creates in love. Everything that he does is love. And the scriptures tell us that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God creates in love and does not will people to suffering or to hell. I am confident of that. C.S. Lewis uh, said, taking it a little bit different angle, he said there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. And so, when someone loves another person, they grant that person freedom. Freedom to love back, otherwise they are not truly loving that person. And in that freedom, some people choose against God. And choosing against God means I don't want to have anything to do with you. And to that person, God says, Lewis argues, thy will be done. Next question is, is it possible for human beings to have and to exhibit unconditional love to other human beings? No. I would again say that God is love and the word that is used in the scriptures most often to describe God as love uh, means selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love, uh, the love of uh, Paul when he talks about in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, God loved us. God loves us unconditionally. Jesus paints a picture through a parable of a loving father who regardless of what his prodigal son does or did or ever will do, he will love him unconditionally, kill the fatted calf, put on his robe, give him the ring. That is God. And we all know that is not us. But Jesus is moving us in that direction. Will we ever become God, divine, perfect, holy? No. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's not talking about moral perfection there. The context is he's just been talking about love and how we love other people. And Jesus says to aim for that. And everything Jesus does and what he models and teaches shepherds us toward becoming more and more loving. Purely loving, loving people without condition, regardless of what they have done, forgive them. Regardless of who they are, how they were born, where they live, their socioeconomic status, status, love them. Jesus shepherds us in that way and is molding us as he calls us to become like him, to follow him, to be his apprentices. Get to the place where you can love your enemy is what Jesus says. Will any of us ever get there? No. But there are people who over the course of their lives get close to that. People like Mother Teresa, people like Thomas Merton, people who follow the teachings of Jesus so intently that their person and their heart are formed more and more closely to his. Is it possible for human beings to exhibit unconditional love to other un human beings on an ongoing basis? No, but God leads us in that direction and desires to shape us in that way.
What does it mean to be a follower of God, someone asks. And the phrase or the term follower of God doesn't uh, show up anywhere in the scriptures. The word, the word follower shows up in relation to Jesus twice in the New Testament, twice in the Gospels, and Jesus calls people to follow him. To follow a rabbi, which Jesus was considered to be, meant to subscribe to his teaching and his prescribed way of living and his way of seeing and understanding the world. Uh, To be a follower of Jesus is not to have one's name on the role of a church or to identify oneself as Christian, but it is an active process where we seek, like apprentices, to become like our master. It is a process to follow Jesus. Literally, they talked in the first century about uh, the students or disciples or apprentices of rabbis getting the rabbi's dust on their feet, the dust from their walking. So closely were they expected to walk behind their rabbi, both literally and figuratively, becoming like that person. That is who we are. We will never be God or God's But God calls us in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. Jesus, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To become more and more like him is what it is like to follow God or to be a follower of God. Another question that uh, in some ways the answer to is I don't know, is is it possible to be saved if you believe in God but not Jesus? And part of me wants to go off on a tangent and talk about what it means to be saved because that's a whole different thing than what many people think about uh, when we talk about the word save or salvation. If you read the scriptures and listen closely to Jesus, he has some very different ideas than what many of us traditionally grew up with about what that means. I take the person's question to mean only and solely heaven or hell after we die. That's how I understand the person to be asking the question. Is it possible to be saved if you believe in God, but not Jesus? So I would give as uh, a three-part response, and that would be, well, think of Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all of the men and women like them. I believe that they were saved, and I think the book of Hebrews indicates to us that those people were saved by their faith in God and their faith in what God would bring about and through whom he would bring it about. The second group of people that I would say would be saved who didn't believe in Jesus are those who have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the gospel of Jesus, either before our time or during our time or in the years to come. I don't think that means that a person is saved simply by not hearing the gospel. But I don't see, as I read the scriptures, God condemning to non-salvation someone who never had a chance to hear the gospel. That would be inconsistent with the God that we read about in the scriptures. So that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to proclaim the gospel and Jesus and his name to every person on the face of the earth. I believe he does. Because there is joy in that and there is assurance in that and there is kingdom in that. But even some of those who have not heard today, I think will be saved by and will be judged by 
their response to God's revelation that they have been given. And God has revealed himself to everyone in some ways the, te- the scriptures teach. God has put eternity in our hearts, we read in Ecclesiastes 3. In Romans 1, Paul talks about God revealing himself to all people through creation. So everyone has had access in some capacity to some revelation or awareness of God. The other piece of this, I will tell you, is that there are some theologians, some students of the scriptures, who believe that Jesus can be and maybe is the anonymous Savior of the whole world. People who, there are places in Scripture that talk about the reality that Jesus died for the sins of all, for the sins of everyone, for the sins of the whole world. Some would argue that that Jesus' work on the cross only applies to those to whom accept or receive or believe in Jesus. But there are others who believe that Jesus' death on the cross was the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the world, whether they acknowledge Jesus or not, whether they know about Jesus or not, which makes Jesus an anonymous Savior. For many of us, we recoil at that that idea and think that's not consistent with the Scriptures. But again, not saying that I subscribe to that point of view, but we ask ourselves, do we want all people to be saved? Absolutely. Do we want all people to be welcomed into God's family? Absolutely. That's what we long for. That's what we hope for. That's what God yearns for himself. Second, the Jesus that we know through the scriptures is a humble savior, is he not? A humble Messiah not clamoring for attention for himself. And so it would almost be like Jesus to be an anonymous savior. I don't think that's God's plan. I think the right, the the universe is in a just and right place when all people recognize the lordship of Jesus and proclaim my Lord and my God. And Jesus is on his throne and all people are bowed down and worship to him. But there are some who will say that even those who do not believe in Jesus may be saved through the graciousness and the love of God in the end. Is the church open to racial reconciliation, someone asks. And I just put in my notes, I hope so, with an exclamation point. I certainly hope so. I don't know if their question is about this church or the church universal or the Presbyterian church, but I hope so. Enough terrible things have been done among the races in the name of God and in the name of religion by Jews and Muslims and Christians and Hindus and Buddhists and all manner of religious people and all manner of racially different people. The church is on the hook for all of the things that have been done in the name of Jesus that would qualify as racism over the centuries. But Isaiah said that, he would, that God would send to us a light unto the Gentiles. He says this as a Jew to Jews, 
that God cares about the Gentiles as well. And Paul talks in Ephesians 2 about how Jesus unites people who previously had been separated, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, about reconciliation with one another before they are united to themselves. Martin Luther King Jr., I think it was, said that the most segregated hour in America today is still 11 a.m. We still have a long way to go. But I'm open, and I think this congregation is open to, and more than open to, interested in reconciliation between the races in our country, in our community, and in the world. And that's a part of the gospel, friends. That's a part of the gospel. There are uh, people and movements and individuals and organizations for whom, in Christ, for whom that is their very specific mission and the thing to which God has called them. Their follow-up question is, what might this look like? I think it looks like going back in history and recognizing and confessing and admitting and acknowledging the ways the church has participated in and condoned and been a part of racism in our culture. It means going back and saying, I'm sorry, and then being a part of restitution and then reconciliation. I think it also means a church that is intentionally diverse, a leadership team that is intentionally diverse, a church staff that is intentionally diverse, that portrays people loving one another across racial lines, across cultural lines. And I hope that we can be more and more about this. Next question is, how do we as believers cope with the possibility or the reality that we will be separated from forever from loved ones who don't believe? In other words, don't go to heaven. How do we as believers cope with the possibility, reality, that we will be separated forever from loved ones who don't believe? In other words, don't go to heaven. I don't know. Hope, pray, speak, share the gospel, trust God, long, grieve. I don't know. Is Satan physical or mental? And I would say Satan is spiritual and real. We see in the scriptures that Satan can enter persons or animals, physical beings, and possess them, and that Satan can play with our minds and distort them, and so mental. So is Satan physical and men- or mental? I would say he's spiritual and real and can embody physical beings and can attack our minds. How can we visualize Jesus, someone asks. Uh, we simply don't know what Jesus looks like. I can tell you that Jesus didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. If you're interested in visualizing him, I thought that's a great question. I should ask someone who's blind and I'm not close to anyone who's blind right now. Uh, there's a good chance I would say that Jesus is a lot less attractive than the Hollywood Jesuses that you see, that we see, that are portrayed in the movies like this guy. Uh, Jesus probably wasn't that good looking. Um, a number of years ago, BBC took uh, a lot of forensic evidence and put together what they thought Jesus might look like based on the average first century Palestinian Jew. Now, this is their image of that. Could that be what Jesus would look like? We don't know. 
We, uh, the scriptures describe Jesus as a shepherd. The scriptures describe Jesus as a warrior. We really don't know what he looked like. Uh, we do or can conclude or infer that he didn't look a whole lot different than other common men of his time. Otherwise, one of the gospel writers probably would have noted that to us. He had red hair. He had blue eyes. He walked with a limp. He had, you know, a hooked nose, whatever. We don't really know, though. That's the best we can do. Next question is, how does one bring Jesus up among atheists? Pray. Wait for a natural opening. Don't be pushy. Ask questions like, what do you think about the historical Jesus and why? Do you have questions about what the scriptures say about Jesus? Is there anything about the historical Jesus that you find attractive or appealing? And if so, what? And then listen. What are some of the most difficult questions about, oh, I've already <laughs> asked that one, yeah. Um, my question has to do with Easter, someone writes, uh, and the timing of Easter. And I'm going to post a link on our Facebook page, but the, the person uh, doesn't understand or didn't understand or wanted to know why Easter falls at a different time every year. And the easiest thing I'm going to do is post a link on our Facebook page to answer that because it's a long answer. In short, it has to do with the fact, uh, it's blame it on the moon, the uh, Jews lived with a lunar calendar, and uh, so their celebration of Passover was tied to the lunar calendar, and they had 29 to 30 days in every month, and so that meant that every so many years, our, their months were constantly moving in relation to years, and so every 15 or 18 or 19 years, they had to add another month to their calendar, like we add a leap year 24 times every century. So uh, they had to do that, and it kept moving around uh, their Passover, and our celebration of Easter is tied to the Jewish Passover. That's kind of the short answer to that. What is the Presbyterian view of the ecumenical or general councils of the church? How many are recognized, seven or 21? This is a question from someone who uh, has a Catholic background. There were these things called ecumenical councils when, uh, before the internet, when the church would get together and try to make some decisions about some big controversial issues. Uh, the first four of those were in uh, Nicaea in 325, Constantinople in 381, Ephesus in 431, Chalcedon in 481. Uh, Presbyterians traditionally uh, subscribe to the findings and the conclusions of those four more than any of the other. And then after a while, the ecumenical councils really aren't ecumenical anymore. They become just uh, Roman Catholic. And after that point, Protestants in the 1500s uh, aren't really in touch with, even though they're still called by the Catholic Church ecumenical councils, they really aren't all world or global councils. Um, See, do we have any more questions from this morning? I'm going to try to do a couple more. This is from an elementary school uh, student that was just handed to me uh, bef before. Uh, I'll take those, Terry. Thanks. During the, uh, our time of worship, where did God come from? Uh, Texas. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's called God's country. Uh, that's a, a great question, and uh, 
Nobody knows the, I don't know the answer to that question. That's a profound question, uh, far above an elementary school student's uh, thinking. Uh, we, th- we say that God is eternal, that God had no beginning, that God, God always has been and always will be, and that's hard for our minds to, uh, to wrap themselves around. Um, 1915, uh, Albert Einstein, Theory of Relativity. Uh, we thought the world always existed and uh, that it, the world too, always was, always has been, the universe, the cosmos, but then the theory of relativity and all of the work in physics and cosmology since then seems to affirm, with the help of Hubble, that the, the, the universe did have a beginning. It did have a beginning, uh, commonly and simply known as the Big Bang. It did have a definite beginning point many, 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 many years ago. And scientists would say, that everything has a cause. And if something had a beginning, then there was a cause to that beginning. And if there was nothing in the universe before the, the beginning, what caused the beginning? And our response is God. We don't know where God came from, uh, and we can't wrap our minds around the reality that God has always been, but we know that the universe in which we live and dwell, as big as it is, had a beginning from all that the smartest people that have ever lived now know. And that beginning had a cause or a reason or a prompt. And we believe that was God. Why is death the penalty for sin? That's a great question. God is life uh, because God always was. He's the source of zoe and bio. He's the source of life. Rebellion against God simply equals death. I don't believe God, as though God is just, according to God's nature and character, and requires justice in the universe, and so punishment for sin or rebellion, uh, it, that's the easy answer. I think the more uh, nuanced answer is that God is life, and things that are anti-God are unlife or death. And so rebellion against God, by that sense, equals death. God, I don't think, is out to punish us. I used to think that God was angry and mean. I don't believe that anymore. The Bible says often that Jesus will return soon. I wonder if soon has another meaning in the Greek, or maybe God's time is very different. A day is like a thousand years, etc. The word soon in Greek means soon. And we wait and that's always for 2,000 years been the posture and the understanding of the church. I do know that today we're a little bit closer than we were yesterday to the return of Jesus. On the timing thing, I don't know uh, anymore. There are people who, and you, maybe you've been in churches that have timelines up on their walls. Uh, the guy across the street, what was his name? Harold Camping, uh, set a date uh, many decades ago. He was wrong a number of times. We do not know. Jesus was not sure himself. We do not know. I do not know. But we know with confidence that he came once, that he promised that he would come back, that many people would be surprised. So uh, we look, we wait, and we watch. And that's part of our living by faith and in faith. Will we have free will in heaven? That's a great question. 
I think we will have free will. And in the state of heaven, in our full redemption, and in the glory and majesty and beauty of God, we will will one thing. And that is the glory and the majesty and the praise of the one who has loved us and redeemed us and who is wholly good. And in the presence and in the, the light and brilliance, unshadowed of a God who is wholly good, we will, in freedom, will one thing, to love him with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, period. Why is modern-day Christianity so much more political than it was during Jesus' time? I don't know. I'd go a little bit further in two directions and say because of our fallen nature, because we latch on to things that are easier, it's so much easier to, to make a political statement or to support a political cause or to vote for or put a sign in one's yard or to post something on one's Facebook page or to have a political opinion or to be strident about a, a particular issue. It's so much easier to do all of those things than it is to love your neighbor as yourself or to love your enemy as Jesus calls us to do or to forgive other people. And so we opt for the easier path. I think that's maybe one possible response. Another response is that Jesus was very political. Why is modern day Christianity so much more political than it was during Jesus' time? It was the Roman government who crucified Jesus, the political power and entity of the day. It was the Jewish ruling council who took Jesus. It was a political party within Judaism that took Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. Make no, just be clear about this. Jesus disrupted every political entity that there was in the first century. Got under people's skin disrupted the political status quo. He was very, very much involved in the public square. They didn't crucify him in the temple. They crucified him in the public square. He spoke into issues that had, uh, that had political implications. And we could probably list a dozen or two dozen, starting with taxes, right? Did Jesus have something to say about taxes? Did Jesus have something to say about immigration? Did Jesus have something to say about the rights of women and minorities and those who have been left on the political periphery? He absolutely did. Baptism. Why do some denominations believe in sprinkling, quote, while others uh, in submersion or immersion? That's a good question. Uh, there are, and wow, look at that. Um, there are a variety of ways of understanding baptism in the scriptures. We, uh, two weeks ago today, did a sacraments class where we had a full explanation of that. 
I'll post a document on our Facebook page today as well that will try to answer that really complicated question. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, those who sprinkle or use less than full immersion understand that uh, the amount of water is not what counts. God's presence is what counts. Uh, what, uh, what we believe is happening during baptism isn't dependent on the amount of water, though the richness of full immersion is helpful and visual. And I, I think uh, immersion baptism is a wonderful thing. So uh, come up to the Linquist's house today at noon and celebrate the full immersion baptism of Charlotte White uh, with us all together. I'm going to leave it at that. Let's pray. God, as we uh, pray when we baptize people and when we celebrate the mystery or the sacrament of your Last Supper, what we call communion or Eucharist, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would meet us in this space, that you would do inwardly what these outward signs and symbols signify that you would work in us in ways that we can't work in ourselves, that you would heal us, that you would redeem us, that you would continue to grow us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to seek holiness, not that we might be right in you apart from Jesus, but that we might live more fully into who you've called us to be and made us to be. We love you. Make us comfortable or comfortable enough with the mysteries be glorified in the mysteries. Humble us by the things that we don't know. Cause us to lean on you in trust and in faith and in belief. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.